HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch, grass-fed beef raised on California's central coast. Now available online through Larder Meat Company. Learn more at hearstranch.com. Well, one option is this all happens faster than we imagine, which there are cases of that possibly being the future because uh, the, the speed of transformation is quick right now. And um, it might be that we actually will be able to um, buy online. You know, humans will be disappearing, shall we say. Mm. That's probably one future where the humans are disappearing. We're really okay in having robots do everything and service in restaurants, make our food, design our food digitally. That was Robin Metcalf speculating about the future of our foodways and our labor system. You'll hear more from her later in this episode. We've taken the last month to explore the networks of trade and knowledge that bring food to our plates. It's been a big task. We started by looking at the broad trade networks of history that enabled the process of globalization, from the Silk Road, connecting civilizations and cultures across Eurasia, to the emergence of imperial powers through trade routes, to the interdependent global system we know today. Then we broke trade down into its components, specifically the components that we taste, literally, in our food. From sweet to salty, umami to spicy, we talked with farmers, journalists, archaeobotanists, historians, business owners, the list goes on, to understand how trade impacts our world. On today's episode, we're taking a step ahead and looking to the future. We want to think about what trade means in a world where many of the issues that earlier traders dealt with don't seem as present anymore. In the past, trade was slowed by distance and communication, which today's internet and faster methods of travel have mediated. Instead, these days, trade is confronted by new issues, global inequalities that force people to migrate, machines so efficient we're making human labor redundant, and alarming threats to cybersecurity. We'll start by looking at the borders that still divide countries and the people whose profession it is to cross them. Then we'll hear about job automation and why sitting back and letting robots do our work for us may not be as relaxing as it sounds. Next, we'll dig deep into the dark corners of the internet. And finally, to conclude our series, we'll travel down the new Silk Road. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meet and Three. Meet and three. Meet and three. Meet and three. 
one meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. Trade crosses over borders, but it doesn't erase them. If anything, borders are more present and enforced than ever. For our first story, Anna Oaks looks at how borders make visible some of the contradictions of trade. In a world that's increasingly globalized and interconnected, national borders don't seem like they should be so relevant. In the United States, we eat Mexican avocados in winter and wear shirts made in Vietnam. And U.S. citizens can travel to almost every country with an American passport and a plane ticket. That's one of the paradoxes of globalization, though. While some people enjoy the ease of access to consumer goods and travel, without the right passport or resources, borders are more impermeable than ever. In the last few decades, the U.S. border has been increasingly reinforced and militarized, especially on its southern stretch. Even as we expand our involvement in free trade agreements like NAFTA and the treaty that replaced it last year, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, and so what we see is this heightening of immobility for workers at the same time that the locuses of economic activity shift and are becoming more flexible. I joke in my book, you know, if you're a banana, you know, it's easy to cross the border. But if you're a person who's trying to follow the jobs,、uh, it's a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to do so in an authorized and safe fashion. That's Alicia Galvez. She's a professor of Latin American and Latino studies at Lehman College and of anthropology at the CUNY Graduate Center. Her most recent work focuses on Mexican migrant communities in the Bronx and the informal couriers who connect families and communities divided by the border. They're called paqueteros or paqueteras, and they operate at a very small scale, very local scale. So your paquetero might be your neighbor, might be someone down the street, might be someone you've known forever. The paqueteros work to carry goods, sometimes just in suitcases on a plane, back and forth between Mexico and the U.S. From north to south, they generally carry consumer items and electronics that are hard to access in Mexico, and from south to north, they bring what Professor Galvez refers to as nostalgia foods. But for a lot of people, there's nothing that compares to the very precise, specific ingredients that are produced in their home communities, and even better than that, are prepared foods by someone that they know and love. People who migrated as adults or as young. As adolescents look back on those foods that they ate at their mother's or grandmother's table with great fondness, and will pay a premium to, you know, arrange for their grandmother's mole or some kind of specific spice or bread to be shipped from their home community. While corporate American brands have become ubiquitous in rural Mexico, small-scale subsistence farming is increasingly difficult and expensive. In turn, it's gotten harder for people in the diaspora to access traditional foods. By connecting communities in the U.S. with local Mexican producers, paqueteros are helping maintain certain foodways that get lost under larger trade arrangements. So, in that sense, they're you know kind of one by one、um, in a you know very artisanal sort of way, creating a food distribution system that favors small-scale producers. If we want to truly see a North American free trade agreement, we need special protections and facilitation of small-scale producers being able to sell their goods 
as easily and as competitively as the large-scale corporations can. And we have to see human mobility as well. Until trade agreements allow for more equitable mobility and support for rural communities, Paqueteros will continue to fill that essential function, bridging the gap between people on both sides of the border. In 2019, Eating Matters host Jenna Liut talked to author, historian, and food futurist Robin Metcalf about the prospective fate of the global food trade and its implications on the labor force. Since then, contactless services have sprung up just about everywhere, especially in the food industry. These services have created an extra sense of health safety during a pandemic, but what happens as we get even more comfortable cutting humans out of our food supply chain? How much technology can we really tolerate? Businesses across the globe are adopting Industry 4.0, otherwise known as the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It marks the ongoing automation of traditional manufacturing through innovative technology. These forms of tech can completely transform systems within the food supply chain, which ultimately takes away people's jobs. I think one thing we're missing is that we have, you know, the people who work in our industrial, shall we say, our manufactured food system, mm-hmm. um, we don't know, we don't see them, we don't know them. You know, there's, and there's millions of them. Oh, yeah. Nationally and internationally. And that is the first industry, the process-related activities that are going to be automated and are currently being automated. And I know there are some people who say, well, you know, we can move them into being coders. They'll just move on. And people who I interview in that business, you know, they're not necessarily going to do that. They're, they work with their hands. That, that gives them that sense of satisfaction. Knowing that this is, has such a huge impact on our humanity, both in the workforce and in our relationship to ourselves and food, is there a way to work with designers of these new systems, processes, and products to think about that now? You know, bring some of the people from the process businesses into the design, you know, thinking circle. I mean, this is one of the most unheard from or Um, unknown areas, you know, groups of people are the people who bring us food that we never see. Mm -hmm. They work at night, they work in big buildings. No one has any idea about who they are. We know our farmer, we get to know our chef, but how about getting to know all the people who work in the, you know, the belly of the beast, basically. The COVID-19 pandemic has only sped up the transition towards more technological reliance in the agri-food industry. More companies are making long-term investments in technology. Take automated guided vehicles, for example. Unlike traditional forklifts, they don't require multiple employees and can work in harsh conditions. Or industrial robots that can chop veggies, grill foods, and perform other tasks. The food and ag industry take up a large portion of jobs in the U.S. In 2019, it made up 10.9% of national employment. With the rise of tech, these jobs are at stake. But is this future really inevitable? Robin asks us to imagine how far we're willing to let this trend go. I think it's a good exercise to think about when something comes up and a change in our food system, to run it out there a little bit further and say, what would happen if, and and see how we feel about that. If, what would happen if humans disappeared? Right. Um, like we did, we, the only way we got coffee was by using the coffee kiosk. Try to imagine that future. 
If you'd like to hear more about Robin's work and her predictions for the future of the food world, check out the rest of the Food Roots episode on Eating Matters. The link will be in our show notes. We'll be right back with more Meat and 3 after a short break. This episode is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. The Hearst family has raised cattle on California's central coast since 1865. Today, Hearst Ranch's signature product is their 100% grass-fed, completely hormone and antibiotic-free beef. The Hearst Ranches have always treated their animals with great care. Their cattle live a completely natural existence as foragers and grazers. Well-managed grazing fertilizes the land naturally, sustains a seasonal rhythm to the ranches, and produces a remarkable meat whose flavor is the authentic taste of the American West. Hearst Ranch beef is available seasonally, May through August, in select Whole Food markets throughout California, and all year round at their retail locations in San Simeon and Paso Robles. And now, HRN listeners in Arizona, Nevada, and California can get Hearst Ranch beef delivered right to their door through Larder Meat Company. Go to lardermeatco.com and shop the 100% grass-fed box to stock your freezer with Hearst Ranch beef. That's L-A-R-D-E-R, meatco.com. Learn more about the storied history, farming practices, and conservation efforts of Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. Have you ever found yourself falling down an internet rabbit hole? You Google a simple question and then suddenly you're clicking through the dusty corners of the internet. Well, maybe while fishing around the web, you found out about the Silk Road's less famous cousin. Next up, Caroline Fox introduces us to the darknet marketplace, the other Silk Road. At the start of our mini-series, we introduced you to the analog version of the Silk Road, a 4,000-mile network of trade routes linking China with the West. Now, thanks to the internet, we can digitally trade almost everything instantly. But speed and access comes at a price, and on the internet, that price is our privacy and our data. It's no surprise then that as technology advances, some people are resisting this forward momentum in favor of privacy. Luckily, there's a deeper side to the internet that promises just that. The Silk Road is an anonymous dark web that emerged around 2010 as an alternative trade route and covert marketplace. But interestingly enough, food always finds its way into everything, and the dark web is no exception. So the dark web, it's collections of websites that are designed to anonymize viewers of the websites, but also the people who make the websites. So they look like regular websites. There's search engines, there's wikis, there's blogs, there's social networking sites and markets and stuff like that but you have to route your browser through special software. And that software prevents the website owner from knowing who you are and also prevents you from knowing who the website owner is. And it came about 20 years ago uh, when people were starting to get concerned about surveillance on the regular internet. That's Robert Gale, the F.J. Taylor Endowed Research Chair of Communication at Louisiana Tech University. He's also the author of Weaving the Dark Web, and was able to give me an inside look into what was actually being sold across dark web marketplaces. 
somebody came onto Reddit who was a vendor selling on the Silk Road. And he said, yeah, there are people selling pretzels on the Silk Road. And I think that's an interesting thing to point to because we associate the Silk Road with drug sales. Um, So it's kind of an odd idea to have pretzels being sold there. But it actually speaks to the goals that the Silk Road market had. The dark web version of the Silk Road was partly born out of agorism, a political philosophy coined by Samuel Edward Konkin III in the mid-70s. Konkin advocated for removing power from the state, envisioning a society free from regulation, and without regulation, our markets would resemble what libertarians and plenty of Silk Road advocates push for, called a free market. If you look at agorist thinking, they love food trucks and they love growing your own food because these things are not dependent on essentially government systems. So there's a whole politics to pretzels on the dark web. If you're buying pretzels on the dark web, chances are you believe in a marketplace free from government oversight. But crunchy snacks are not alone in this alternative culinary world. One of the popular things that you can find on ebook sites on the dark web is cookbooks. And one site has something like 25,000 cookbooks on there. And I took a look to see what's the popular type of cooking you find on the dark web. And it turns out to be Southern cuisine. According to Rob, cooking and recipe sharing actually make up a large community across dark web social media. Just like Facebook, users create profiles, like each other's posts, and engage in social activities. The only difference is that everything is completely anonymous. So the dark web social networking sites in particular position themselves as you're free to express who you are and explore your identity. Um, Just, you know, don't give away any personal information. And one of the big topics was recipes or groups dedicated to sharing recipes on these dark web social networking sites. And I'm not really a foodie myself, but I always found that to be really fascinating that people are sharing recipes on the dark web. People were sharing recipes to build community and share things with each other. And they just didn't want to do it under the kind of watchful eyes of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. One person I met on a dark web social networking site said to me, don't tell me who you are. Tell me who you are. Emphasizing, like, express yourself, but don't give me your name. Just like in the real world, on the dark web, Food also has the power to unite those looking for a connection. While recipes and ingredients are exchanged, personal information stays way out of the conversation. In fact, the New York Times food section took advantage of this appeal, creating a dark web version that has skyrocketed to popularity. The New York Times actually has a dark web page. So you can go to the NewYorkTimes.com or you can go to their hidden onion site. And you could read uh, the New York Times through Tor. And so the idea there is that your ISP or whoever is not tracking what you're reading online. It's so fundamental to human activities. And you know, if you look at the dark web through the lens of food, you see some really fascinating activities. As online marketplaces have made it easier to buy and sell food, it's no surprise that a community of food lovers exists across alternative social media too. But unlike conventional trade, the dark web's lack of regulation gives way to plenty of unlawful actions. Leaving no trace, users buy and sell stolen identities, drugs, and commit fraud with ease. But even though the dark web's reputation may be saturated with crime, according to Rob, there's still an abundance of opportunity that comes with anonymous communication. I basically argue that 
if we throw away something like an anonymizing network, we throw away one channel for political communication. And so there are spaces for political communication that should be disassociated with people's identities. It's not every situation, it's some situations. And so basically the end of my book, I kind of say, in essence, we're using the dark web wrong if we're using it just for you know, selling stolen information. We really need to think about it as a political communication channel. And that's a tough argument to make these days when, you know, like the main internet is overrun with conspiracy theories and stuff, even though in the long run, I think we need anonymous communication to have political discussion. With the help of COVID-19, our lives have been increasingly driven online. And that includes trade, which has taken on a new digital identity. But the scope of trade online goes beyond just food. The internet has evolved into a global network of ideas, cultures, and ideologies. And as we follow food from the mainstream internet down to the dark web, we can see how its role expands beyond just a good to be bought and sold, but as an avenue to exchange ideas and form connections. The U.S. and China are the world's largest trade powers, as they import and export more goods than any other countries respectively. Trade wars between the two countries made headlines during the Trump administration. But almost a decade ago, China announced the most expansive, ambitious, and costly strategy for foreign development the world had ever seen. Ryder Bell talks us through this worldwide plan. Let's go back to 2013, when China's President Xi Jinping unveiled what he called a project of the century in the Belt and Road Initiative, a massive network of international trade routes and forward investment. The Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI for short, represents both great potential for increasing China's global power and new trade and development infrastructure across Eurasia. Sometimes dubbed the New Silk Road, the plan pays homage to the prolific economic and cultural exchange of the ancient Silk Road that we touched on in the first episode of this series. But it will look very different from caravans traveling on desert highways. The BRI consists of two routes. The road, which makes up a bulk of the plan's projects, is a maritime trade route along the Indian Ocean that travels from Southeast Asia to Europe through the corridor of North Africa and the Middle East, making pit stops in Jakarta, Kolkata, Nairobi, Athens, and Venice. The Belt is a web of overland routes throughout Russia, the Middle East, and Europe. While the Chinese government is determined to see the plan come to fruition, the BRI is still in its aspirational phase. With a proposed completion date of 2049, it is yet to be seen whether its initial objectives can actually be accomplished. Many international academics are also confused as to how exactly to define the BRI, as well as which foreign investment projects are part of the broad plan, which are not, and how all of this new infrastructure will affect international trade and world politics. Despite some lack of clarity, the BRI is poised to involve about 138 countries and could see investment of $1.4 to $8 trillion. Here's what we know so far about how the Belt and Road Initiative works. In order to establish a project, a participating country will borrow money from China to build a mine or a port or another form of infrastructure like railroads or production centers. These contracts often happen through secretive bilateral negotiations. To some critics, 
The strategy is a form of debt trap diplomacy. This is when a country imposes its power and influence on less powerful countries through excessive amounts of unpayable debt. But others say this view is prejudiced, that the BRI isn't a grand scheme to take over the world, but more of a fragmented strategy for China to improve its domestic economy. One example that highlights this debate is the case of the Hambantota port in Sri Lanka. In the late 2000s, Sri Lankan President Mahinda Rajapaksa proposed the idea of constructing a new port on the southern tip of the country, despite the government being hamstrung with debt. Studies show that the project wasn't economically viable and really didn't make much sense for Sri Lanka due to the lack of naval traffic and the sparse population in the region surrounding the port. But the country was able to secure funding and construction services from China. In 2015, Pala Sirisena replaced President Rajapaksa, and the Sri Lankan government was forced to hand 85% of the port over to China, as well as surrounding land for an industrial zone, giving the country a well-positioned base for naval operations. To some, this is a prime example of debt trap diplomacy, and even neocolonialism. While others blame the venality of participating countries, in this case Sri Lanka, and their lack of economic due diligence. In addition to the Hambantota port, many projects have been reduced in size, delayed, or called off due to vague planning or inaccurate budgeting, or they've been seized by the Chinese government before or upon completion. The main impetus for the Belt and Road Initiative is to create foreign hubs of economic activity, development, and increased access to minerals and energy, but it will also have great agricultural and environmental implications. From an oilseed processing plant in Kazakhstan, to a hybrid wheat farm in Pakistan and a grain port in East Russia, the BRI also constitutes many agricultural and agribusiness projects. Grain.org is an international nonprofit that supports small farmers and social movements for food sovereignty and biodiverse agriculture. The organization has raised concern over the impacts that massive infrastructural investment will have on small-scale farmers, project laborers, the environment, and in heightening tensions in international conflict zones. In a 2019 article, they report that large-scale land grabs in order to build economic corridors of development will be detrimental to the ecosystems that are disrupted. This will in turn exacerbate social and environmental problems locally and globally. In light of the COVID-19 pandemic and increased public and political pressure governments and businesses face to maintain climate responsibility, China has changed the tone of the BRI since it was launched in 2013. Promises of green development and harmonious cooperation have been alluded to in the BRI's more recent documents. New negotiations and healthcare investment ensued at the start of the pandemic. But it is yet to be seen if it is possible to have as heavy a hand in the orientation of the world while still remaining socially equitable and climate conscious. For those concerned for the food system and inequitable power dynamics between nations, there may be reason to be skeptical. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Special thanks this week to Anna Oaks, Karina Andreatos, Caroline Fox, and Ryder Bell. Meet and 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Kat Johnson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network the world's pioneer food radio station. 
Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.